0: This talk was given by Vanessa Zuisei-Goddard-Sensei. Zuisei-Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazwisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome, especially to those of you who are joining us for the first time. I want to speak about, uh, this is really the second half of a two-part series, two-part koan that I started yesterday, and I want to to speak about the second half. This is from the Gateless Gate, Case 41, Bodhidharma's Ease of Mind. So this is part two. The main case says, Bodhidharma sat in Zazen facing a wall. The second ancestor, Wika stood for a long time in the snow. Finally, he cut off his own arm and presented it to Bodhidharma. He said, my mind is not at ease. Please, master, set it at ease for me. Bodhidharma replied, bring me your mind and I will set it at ease for you. Wika said, I've searched for it everywhere, but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma said, There, I've set it at ease for you. Woman's commentary. The broken toothed old foreigner proudly traveled 10,000 miles over the ocean. This was as if he were raising waves where there was no wind. Ultimately, he got only one disciple, but even he was maimed. Alas, he was a fool indeed. <clears throat> Woman's poem. Coming from the West and directly pointing, this great affair was caused by the transmission. The troublemaker who created a stir in Zen circles is, after all, you. So yesterday I really spoke about the first half of this encounter, that expression of Wicca's great faith, great doubt, great determination, and I also try to qualify and contextualize that, that gory image of him cutting off his arm as he's standing in the snow, with snow up to his knees, asking for the teachings. And this is a very well-known story in Zen. And of course, it's not to be taken factually, but it is, um, to me, a, a powerful allegorical statement of uh, as deep unease. And we don't know what happened before. I, I didn't actually delve into, there's actually very little known about him. So in his biography, what, what led him to that point, to him seeking Bodhidharma out to ask for the teachings? And as I said yesterday, at first, Bodhidharma just ignores him and actually kind of puts him down and says, you know, who are you? Who are you to think that you can awaken? You of little understanding. And it is said that at that point is when Wicca, when to, to show his determination, cuts off his arm and says, please, my mind is not at ease. Please set it at ease for me. And it's an unusual way to phrase it, if you, if you think about it. I don't know what the, what the original was in Chinese, but that he's asking, please set my mind at ease for me. Or is he really just saying, please help me? Because there's a difference there. Because there's, there's an element in this plea that is true, I think for all of us at some point in practice, where we, to a greater or lesser extent, do want someone, something to take away our suffering. And isn't this what is underneath our acting out of that unease? So that I'm, I'm, I'm deeply uncomfortable, but I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to deal with it, and so I might put it on you. I put my fear, my insecurity, my hope, my restlessness on you. And it's not like we plan to do this. Right? It's, it's, it's reactive. We feel attacked, so we attack. We're uncomfortable, and so we poke at someone else to ease our discomfort. And that is why I think it is such an important uh, part of practice to build up what I call our emotional resilience, our tolerance for difficult emotions, difficult thoughts. And I was thinking as I was writing this talk that I've been speaking of this a, a bit lately, and I I think it's because I really believe that it's true, because I see in myself and I see in others how much conflict we create through our inability to feel what we feel and not react, to think what we think and not judge ourselves, not try to change it, not try to act out. And so resilience teaches us to hold what sometimes can be very difficult strong emotions, and not project them onto someone else. But, you know, this doesn't mean that Zen practice is is a form of, of therapy, because it isn't. As the Buddha said, you know, practice is really for one thing and one thing only, and that is to see the truth of suffering and to put an end to it. And the way to do that ultimately is to realize Ourselves is to realize the very nature of the one who is having these strong emotions, to realize the nature of the strong emotions themselves. <clears throat> and we cannot do that if we're caught, if we're thrown in a storm. And so I do feel we need to have a way to recognize and deal with them. And what's interesting to me is that in the, in the early sutras, I mean, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness, the, the, you could say kind of the foundational sutra of practice, of meditation practice. The Buddha actually lays this out in quite great detail. You, you, you start with a breath. You're working with a breath as the object of your meditation. But that's not the only thing you you work on. I mean, it's it's body, mind, thoughts, and feelings. And there's a very systematic and detailed progressive way of both identifying and working with each of these, all the way to doing um, meditations, contemplations on death, the dissolution of the body. And so, this isn't new to Buddhism. You know, to have a, to have an awareness that we are feeling beings. And and uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, I was saying, I touched on it just yesterday. I want to go a little bit in a little more detail into it today. It just says it directly. Vajrayana Buddhism um, teachers basically say all of our conflict, all of our suffering, comes from our inability to deal. With our emotions, I saw a cartoon that there's there's a there's a couple and the the man is talking and the woman is walking away and the man is saying, "Of course, of course, I care about how you imagined, I thought you perceived, I wanted you to feel." (laughs) Do we know how we imagined, we thought, we perceived, we wanted to feel? And if you think about it, it's actually not inaccurate. We have a feeling, and then we have our feelings about it, and then we have how we perceive it, how we think others will perceive it. And we just keep adding on layers and layers and layers. And and the nice thing that I find in in Zen and certainly in, in my experience in working with this is that it strips away. You learn how to strip away all the various layers so you can get to the heart of what is actually happening so you can see it. So hopefully you can deal with it more skillfully. And so when it comes to dealing with our pervasive unease, Bodhidharma is really pointing, you could, you could call it the shortcut method. He says, bring me your mind and I'll set it at ease. And Wicca, the, this koan doesn't say it, but he goes searching. And we don't know how long that search is. And when he comes back, he says, I looked, I looked, I've searched for the mind, and I cannot find it. And at that point, Bodhidharma says, there, I've set it at ease for you. And so we'll come back to this. But there's also the, the more gradual approach, the kind of getting your hands dirty approach, which is facing the unease And so yesterday I said that the Buddhist teachings recognize five overarching, disturbing emotions—attachment, pride, envy, anger, and ignorance—and that anything else that we experience is really subsumed into these five larger categories— but the teachings also recognize how to deal with these emotions. Through, um, in one, there's various ways, but one of them is called the realization of the five wisdoms. And there's a couple of frameworks uh, for this, and I chose one of them. So it is said that there are five uh, female Buddhas, or Prajnas. Prajna is wisdom, so these are five female Buddhas that are different manifestations of wisdom of the understanding of things as they are. And each one of these is is, is, um, associated with the five elements of water, earth, fire, air, and space. And they really correspond to the realization, to the self-liberation of each of these five emotions. And so if we look at, at greed or attachment, desire, craving, which, as we know, is at the root of all our suffering, according to Buddhism. It is that that cycle of of want and aversion that is really incessant. And someone, someone asked me recently, what do we want to want? And I said, conventionally, to want. We want to want, because wanting itself feels so good. We don't think about it, but that's really the the engine. So at a certain point, it doesn't even matter what it is that we're wanting, because the force behind it, the desire itself, is so compelling. And so desire, from this perspective, really from the perspective of of craving, is a self-fulfilling, closed system. It is a perpetual motion machine. But the thing about the pleasure of craving is that the more we want, the more inured we become to the object of our want, which means we need more and more contact to feel that same kind of high. And there's a um, quote I read by Rebecca Solnit that's been imprinted. Uh, in my mind, she was speaking of um, people who are uh, addicted to crystal meth. And uh, my brother was. He died because of it. And she said, you know, because of the pleasure that that it brings, you need more and more of the drug to feel just at a baseline. And so she says, it is really like they... Like they, they, it is as though they dug their grave with what they thought were wings, and I think that is so true and so powerful. Really, of any desire, really of any desire. I mean, this particular one kills you, but if you think about it, you, how we perceive in the midst of it is that we have wings. You feel invulnerable. You feel immortal. But really, what is happening is you're you're at each. Uh, level, at each stage, you're, you're, you're numbing yourself to it more and more. And so you need more and more. That is why that cycle of craving never ends. And the fact is, it's not what we want that is the problem. So, you know, if you're addicted to food, it, it food is not the problem. Pleasure, pleasure is not the problem. Comfort, intimacy, sex are not the problem. It's that cycle, it's that cycle of want and release, of craving and pleasure. Because it never fulfills itself, it fuels our suffering. And so in his last teaching, at least according to the Mahayana school, the Buddha said, "Have few desires and learn how to be satisfied." And so you can't just get rid of the desire by like ripping it. Out of yourself by saying, "I'm not going to desire." I really feel personally that the moment you stop desiring, you, you're dead, because the desire to be awake is a desire. The desire for food is a desire. Desire for well-being. So, so I've always really liked this teaching because it's saying yes, but know which desires are the ones that will one that you can satisfy actually, and which are the ones that will really that will affirm your life, your well-being. And which ones won't? And how many? How many do you need? And so we need to understand what this strong emotion of attachment is, you know, how it really functions. And then at the very heart, we have to, to realize its nature. That really means understanding directly what attachment is, in a moment of attachment, a moment of desire arising, to be willing to stop and say, what is this? Right? Not to jump over it to the thing that we want, but to really look, to really study, what is this that is happening right now? Where is it? Who is the one driving it? <clears throat> Which really, if you think, is exactly what Bodhidharma is asking Wicca to do. He's saying, you know, go study your mind. Go look deeply, go find it, and then come back and tell me what you find. And so when we realize attachment, we realize mirror-like wisdom, the realm of lokana, whose element is water. And here we see things clearly, without distortion, like looking into a still clear lake. And all things are revealed as they are. <clears throat> and because they are revealed just as they are, there is no added. There's no attachment or aversion. There's no movement of the mind that says, I want or I don't want. From, from big desires to little desires. you know. Somebody was saying to me recently, they, they sent me an article about um, that bananas are, are in danger of disappearing. Because we there's all, there's apparently currently just one uh, strand of bananas left, and so if that, you know, if, if there's some kind of you know virus or bacteria parasite that gets into it, that's it. It would wipe, it would wipe the. That uh, guess the crop of bananas, you know, across the world. And I thought to myself, that's it, you know, immigration, same sex, Roe versus Wade, you know, threat of war. That one, that one, that's the last straw. That one is like, I can't, I can't, that one I can't take. Which, of course, you know, is not, not true. But in a moment of desire, in even what we impute to a desire, is what, what gives it its, uh, its power. And this story of, uh, this image of the mirror, so this is mirror-like, Wisdom. Um, there is a story about a um, a, a merchant uh, who um, was known for his generosity, and he um, had a very had a store like an antique store, and he didn't actually do very well in in the store, and. But people would come in, and they would spend a little bit of time, and they would talk to him, and maybe they would buy something, and maybe they wouldn't. And he had just enough money to get by, but, you know, his, his house was always kind of dilapidated. Um, but he was actually happy. And then a rabbi came by, uh, had heard about him, and had heard about his, his um, spirit, you know, his generosity, and so he met with him, and immediately this, this man invited him in and you know, scrounged for a couple of things from the kitchen so that they could, he could offer them to this, to this rabbi. And the rabbi, very, very touched by the man's kindness, blessed him. And he said, you know, may you have good fortune. And, and he did. All of a sudden, things began to change, and the store began to do very well. And little by little, the man became more and more wealthy, wealthy, and more and busier and busier. And you know where this is going. He he stopped having time to actually spend with the people who came into his store. And if people needed money, he was always very generous. He would give money, but it always had to be done through a series of people. They had to arrange it, and you know, he would send a check. He became he got farther and farther away from his own, from that same spirit that everybody had so admired uh, in him. And word got back to the rabbi that he had become a very prosperous, very wealthy man, but that nobody ever really saw him anymore and that he did good deeds in the town, but that he didn't really care about the people. And so the rabbi was very distressed by this, and he decided that he would pay him a, a visit. And when he um, arrived, you know, and when people actually, when people would go into the, to the man's house, they would see this great opulence, there these beautiful carpets and paintings all over the walls. And there was this huge mirror that was all along one of the walls. And a big part, a big corner of the mirror was scratched off, and it was just glass, and so everybody would admire the mirror and say, but that is such a shame that it has this, this defect. And the man would say, actually, I did that. I did that to the mirror. And he's actually the one who tells the story. That when the rabbi came back to see him, he said to him, how are you doing? And he said, I have never been better. I have everything. I mean, just look around. And the rabbi said, it's a big, it's a big change, and the rabbi said, yeah, it is a big change, but with sadness you know, in his voice. And so he takes him and he says, what about this mirror? And he says, this is my proudest possession. It was very expensive. I had to send it from who knows where and brought especially back here. And he says, well, let's stand over here. Let's stand in front of it. And so the two of them are standing side by side. And he says, what do you see in the mirror? He says, well, I see myself. Okay, well, look closely. What else do you see? Well, I see all my beautiful furniture. I see my carpet. I see my house. I see my servants. I see all these people that are coming to visit me. And the rabbi says, well, look closer. What else do you see? That's all. That's all I see. And so he takes him then to the window. And he says, okay, now look outside. What do you see? And he says, oh, there is so-and-so. He's, he's had a, a lame leg for a couple of months, and so it's really hard for him you know, to get to the store. Oh, and then there's, there's so-and-so's grandmother. She's been struggling a little bit. I just sent her some money. Oh, and then there's you know, Ricky. You know, he's, he's um, been suspended from school. I, I really have been meaning to have a talk with him, but I just haven't had time to do it. And he just starts going through all the people in the town that he knows, but he hasn't had, he hasn't taken the time you know, to connect with. And all of a sudden, he realizes what has just happened, what has been happening to him all along. And he realizes, looking through this glass, he sees everything. Looking in his mirror, he sees only himself. And so he, as a reminder, he goes and he scratches the mirror so that he can see through it. But the thing is, this mirror, this mirror-like wisdom, is both mirror and glass. So there is absolutely nothing that is left out of it. There is nothing that is not revealed. (coughs) Then pride. Pride is really the belief that that we are better than. Feeling ourselves to be separate, we compare ourselves incessantly with others. And, it, and, it's, and it's although we don't feel it in a moment of pride, underneath it, there's a ground of fear. Whether you're, you're, you know, if you think of insecurity as the opposite of pride, really when you look closely, both, both are resting on a bed of fear. And it's, a, I think, a particularly compelling or prevalent emotion in our culture. Just think of the myth of exceptionalism, of meritocracy. I mean, what else are they but pride? Blown up large. But when pride is realized, it becomes the wisdom of equality. And this is embodied by Mamaki, the Buddha of earth wisdom. And so, just as rain falls on the earth equally, you realize our nature extends equally in all directions because it is one nature. That ultimately there is no high or low, there's no better or worse, there is no way to compare to win or lose. And and let me just make a distinction between pride that is a a kind of self-satisfaction and and a a delight, delight in our actions, in our experiences, in our abilities. So when we say, I take pride in this, or I'm proud about this, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. This is really referring to that arrogance that is filled with self. And pride is very closely tied to envy, I want what you have because I think it will make me happy. And so we look out and we feel our lack, or rather what we perceive as our lack. and then we want, right? It goes back to attachment. And it's a very, very insidious emotion because it doesn't actually take that much, you know, to activate our our envy. Envy is always looking out. And I was remembering you know a, a few years ago, not that long ago actually. We, we used to, in the Zendo, we used to sit up at the monastery by, by seniority. And this was an endless, endless source of distress for people. Because you could sort of tell where everybody was. Ahead of you, in front of you. And it was just so, uh, distressing. For most, some people didn't care. But a lot of people did. And, and during Sushin, I remember being, being monitor a number of times and I would, move people, you know, if they were, they were sitting on the floor and then they would go to a chair. And so I would move them to the back row. And I had people come to me clearly very distressed because they were sure that I had seen somehow into their practice, their state of mind, and I was demoting them. And I kept saying, I just need to be able to see behind you. <laughs> this is not about you. And and um, But the distress was so palpable. And I realized, of course, we take this so Personally, why wouldn't we? <laughs> why wouldn't we? And so envy is always, as I said, it's always looking out and it's always positioning, is the way we position ourselves in relationship to everyone else. And because there will always be somebody who's got it more together than us, there will always be somebody who does something better than us. It also has no end. And interesting here, the Buddha here is the Buddha of Fire, which I think is appropriate. And her name is Pandara Vasini. And she is a manifestation of discriminating wisdom, right? So so, so we've gone from equality to discriminating wisdom. So she understands that although fundamentally all things or be, all beings are equal, clearly we're also different. We have different identities, different... Histories, relationships, and therefore we experience reality differently. You know, my, my, myself, there was that, that article by Lama Rod Owens that came out recently, I think it was in Lion's Roar, where he, he talks about you know, naming your, your identities, the importance of that. So I, as a, as a white, female, cisgender, gay, upper-middle-class Mexican who doesn't look or sound the way most people expect Mexicans to look or sound, I have a very specific location, he calls it. You know, I am grounded in these identities, which cannot help but shape and reflect my experience of myself and the world. So, so you can't know self notwithstanding, non-duality, non-withstanding, equality, notwithstanding. You can't extract yourself from these identities. You can't erase them or pass them over. And to me, this is such an interesting and fruitful and challenging teaching. In a tradition that stands squarely under understanding of selflessness, identitylessness, how do you also fully acknowledge self and identity? How do you intersect between a clear understanding of the illusion of a separate, independent self, which is what liberation is, and also a full honoring of yourself as it is, as it is operating in the realm of form, the everyday, the realm of distinctions. This is the fierce teaching of Pandara Vasini. Then we have anger, the manifestation of no, of aversion. And although all of these disturbing emotions really have at their heart self, the I that hates or is prideful or envious, I think um, anger is so particularly thorny because it is so full of self and because it feels so powerful. There's an element to anger that feels good. It makes us feel like we're in control, like we're in charge. And it's especially difficult when we feel we have the right to be angry. I mean, just look at the world. How can we not be angry? And people ask, rightly so, is there no place for anger in Buddhism? What about in the face of injustice? Is an anger a very powerful driving force for change? And I think it is. It can be. But I also think that anger corrodes. Not just those around you, but the one who is angry. And so Buddhism isn't negating that anger arises. It's saying, when it does, what will you do with it? How will you respond? How do you understand it to begin with? Shantideva speaks of anger quite a bit. When he's speaking about the paramitas, the perfections of wisdom. And he really turns the whole thing on its head. He says, When you know, when when you have a, a, a conflict with someone, it's really you are causing them bad karma by letting them get angry with you. So it's 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 you're you're harming them. And when you read that, you should kind of be like, What? It's meant to stop you. It's meant to turn you on your head. What do you mean it's my fault? Not my fault, because he doesn't use the word fault, but he's kind of putting the responsibility on me, that someone else is getting angry at me, and now they're going to have bad karma because of me. It's very interesting. What this does, it it just upends your whole view. That's exactly what it's meant to do of yourself. It it, it stands you on your head, so you can really stop and think. Wait a second. Where is the anger right now? Who is it benefiting? Who is it harming? And a student sent me an article um, by a by a Tibetan teacher. And you hear these stories. So his story is not unique. But he was in a, a in a prison camp in China for three months, and he was severely tortured. And he was released to Bellevue Hospital. Um, And the person who was doing his intake um, interview was very distressed because she felt his affect didn't match his experience. Because he was joyful, he was laughing, and he said he refused to get angry at his tormentors. And he explains that the reason he was laughing is because he because and this was of course his training he had been a monk from a very early age he would think to himself how is it possible that someone who doesn't know me someone who's never whom i've never harmed wants to harm me i'm leaving because when when he was released he's like i'm leaving this prison they're staying there it's ridiculous for me to get angry at them but just think of the state of mind that you need to be in to actually say that and to say that with joyfulness. He says, in appearance, they were the torturers and I the victim. But in reality, we're all victims. I was their physical punching bag, and they were the victims of their own uncontrollable, destructive emotions. So, so Vajrayana Buddhism really speaks of transforming these, transmuting these. And you start really by, I think, you know, by really being willing to be, put on, to be placed on your head. And say, so in this moment of anger, what is actually happening and what do I choose to do? And so when anger is seen through... When its nature is realized, it becomes all accomplishing wisdom embodied by Tara. And this is really the cultivation of aspiration, bodhicitta, the desire to realize oneself for the benefit of all beings, compassion. And her element is air, a bearable lightness of being. To me, it is the impetus to come to that work of transformation out of a feeling of love and care, not anger and disillusionment. And then the last, which is ignorance. And I said yesterday, it is, that's the crank that keeps the other four rolling. I mean, desire is, is fuels you know, suffering, but, but that comes from ignorance, not understanding. It's a deep state of not understanding. A, a Tibetan teacher called it a pervasive state of bewilderment which I like, but it's also tricky because it's not innocent. It's not innocent. I was listening to a talk by, by Reverend Williams, Angel Kyoto Williams, and she says this very, very pointedly. She says, you know, we, we don't say that anger is neutral. We don't say that greed is neutral. So what makes us think that ignorance is? It's true that I can't see myself. You know, I can't see what I cannot see. But being free of ignorance means being, at least, at the very least, being wanting means wanting to see what I don't yet see and to, to be willing to not turn away from what is so deeply uncomfortable. And so the realization of ignorance is the wisdom of the dharmadhatu, of suchness. And this is the realm of things as they are. And because of this is the fundamental realm of truth, and it encompasses the other four. And the name of this Buddha is Akasara Teshvari, and her element is space. And the image that I've always liked for this is um, we're, we are living, residing, resting in a, in a vast open field. But that is too unsettling. And so we shut ourselves in a broom closet. And it's tight and it's dark and it's uncomfortable because everything is on top of us. But it contains us. And it's familiar. And so I think of practice as the gradual process of opening, first opening the door, first just cracking it open and seeing, oh, there seems to be something out there. I don't know what it is, but I want to. And slowly you start to open it more, and then you freak out, and you go back in. Perhaps you even close the door. And then you open it again. It's okay, I can take this. You see there's blue sky. And then if, if you, at a certain point, you realize, I can't just open the door. And you start dismantling the closet, you know, um, piece of wood by piece of wood. Until a point where you realize there was no closet to begin with. But zazen is the process of dismantling. Until you turn around and you realize, oh, there was nothing there. I was always standing in this open field. And this wide open field is, I cannot find my mind. There, I've set it at ease for you. You understand? Where is the mind that is not at ease? Shibayama asks, who is the one that's seeking it? Is it square or round? Is it white or red? Does it exist or not exist? Practice really requires that we not take our ideas and beliefs for granted. That we not assume we know what we haven't carefully, carefully studied and deeply pondered. This is what what Wicca does, probably for years, most likely. Years of intensive practice, intensive searching. And he comes back and says, I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, I've set it at ease for you. And really, in one sense, as the commentary, both the commentary and the poem say, in one sense, all of this is much ado about nothing. says, you know, Bodhidharma coming from China to India is like racing waves where there is no wind, is stirring trouble where there is none. Why do we have to go searching if ultimately we are that which we seek? Why do we have to sit for hours and hours just to be who we've always been? This is the great paradox of spiritual practice. We work and we work and we work so that we can see that we never needed improvement. We never needed changing or fixing. But we do need to see and act clearly. There's no question about that. And the nice thing is that for every obstacle we have ever come up against on our path, every obstacle in our life, in our lives, we can be certain 100% that someone has already met it and passed through it. If we're struggling on our cushion, no matter how much unease we feel, we can be certain that someone else has felt it too, someone else struggled and found a way. And this is why we do this together. Why don't we don't just sit at home facing the wall, which we do too. But this is why we do this. And so if practice sometimes feels like standing at the edge of a cliff, like standing at the mouth of a gaping cave, just know that when you you stand at the edge of the precipice with your toes just curled over the side, desperately needing to take that step forward, but being terrified, terrified to do it, Just know that if you look this way, you'll see an entire line of bodhisattvas, holding hands, let's say, and they're just waiting for you. And you look this way and you see an entire line of bodhisattvas, as far as your eye can see, also waiting for you. They're just standing there. They're waiting for you to take that step that they've already taken or that they want to take, but they're actually waiting for you. (laughs) Kyoto Williams actually says that. She says, I cannot um, liberate myself without you. She's like, so hurry up. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot liberate myself without you. So these bodhisattvas will stand there for as long as you stand, so that in the moment, the moment you finally decide, yes, I'm taking this step they can take it with you. For more talks, to get information about Zuisei Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazwisegoddard.org.